Please open your Bible up to Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. That's going to be on page 58 if you're using the church Bible. Uh, We're turning to a new section in the book of Exodus that's particularly fitting for this hot month of August. Uh, Exodus 15.22 through the end of chapter 18 is the story of Israel's initial pilgrimage through the wilderness region on the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt to Mount Sinai. And in this morning's text, we're going to see that Israel's lack of food and water provide opportunity for God to test and teach Israel. This is one of the last sort of larger blocks of uh, text we're going to wrestle with for at least a few weeks. Um, It is a little longer. I've tried to make the sermon a little shorter. Kelsey can tell you all morning I was cutting things and kind of making pain sounds. So uh, if I cut too far and it's incoherent, just ask me afterwards. Let's begin at Exodus 15, 22, and we're going to read through the end of uh, of chapter 16. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went six days in the wilderness and found no, or sorry, they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah, and the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians." For I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elim and all the congregation of the people of Israel, and they came to the wilderness of Sin. And let me pause there for just a moment. It's just a shortened form of Sinai. It has nothing to do with our English word sin, even though that's what the word looks like. Uh, it's, It's the wilderness around Mount Sinai. Uh, It's between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? 
Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take, each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever had gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there was no worms in it. And Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there shall be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in this place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the hill of, uh, sorry, the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with, with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. An omer is a tenth part of an ephah. 
And if you don't know what an ephah is, it means it's about a liter or two of grain uh, that they gathered each. This is God's word. This morning in these stories, I want to focus on three truths about God. First, God loves complainers. Second, God tests his people. And third, God sustains and shapes his people. God loves complainers. God tests his people. God sustains and shapes his people. First, God loves complainers. Not for their complaining, but in spite of their complaining, God loves complainers. And as a confessed complainer, this is good news, okay? That God's grace is even for complainers. If you've ever been on a road trip with kids, you know that there are four or five stock phrases that just keep coming on repeat. I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, are we there yet? I've got to go pee, he's touching me, right? Have you heard these if you've been on a road trip? Okay. Uh, And if those don't seem to get the parents' attention, what always gets added? I'm going to die, right? I'm so hungry, I'm going to die. If he touches me again, I'm going to die. Well, Israel is three days into this journey, and we hear the same complaints. What shall we drink? I'm thirsty. Why did you even bring us out here into the wilderness, Moses? Are you trying to kill us with hunger? Okay, here in the same sort of typical road trip complaints. Of course, I don't want to downplay, uh, you know, it is funny, but I don't want to downplay the real danger Israel faces. Three days is about the longest a person can go without water. They travel three days, they find no water. Then they come to this place called Merah, and you can think for a minute, they're excited. Look, here's water. And then they get over and they start to drink it and they all spit it out because it's bitter undrinkable water. What are they going to do? The circumstances are indeed dire, and so at one level the complaints are entirely warranted. But the question is, who should Israel be complaining to, and what form should their complaint take? Notice in 1524, instead of complaining to the Lord, it says that in their distress Israel grumbled against Moses. Again, in 16.2, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Throughout this initial wilderness pilgrimage, these stories we're going to be looking at over the coming weeks, noticeably, every time Israel gets into trouble, they complain against Moses and Aaron, but never directly to God himself. And that raises the second question, what form should Israel's complaint take? In the book of Psalms, we have model prayers, a bunch of model prayers. And at least a third of those prayers are laments, uh, what we might call holy complaining. A lament prayer comes to the Lord from a place of trouble, and it calls out to him. A biblical lament is complaining, recognizing that whatever situation we are in, whatever sort of trouble we face, we must ultimately appeal to the Lord because he is ultimately in control of all things. Okay, lament prayers are in a roundabout way worship because when we lament to the Lord, we recognize that God is God and we are not. Okay, so just pause there for a moment. How do you complain when you complain? Okay, is it griping to your parents or spouse or friend? Or do you address God with your complaint? 
And does that complaint look like a lament psalm, acknowledging God, the creator, redeemer, and sustainer? Do you appeal to his goodness? Or is it sort of accusations against him? How dare you do this to me, Lord? Well, with that in mind, we see a bit of a problem here with the way Israel complains. They don't complain to God. They've just seen that God is their deliverer, their redeemer, but now they need to learn that the Lord is also their provider, their sustainer. And so in 1526, after providing water, God explicitly tells Israel, I am the Lord, your healer. There's another aspect of God's character that Israel needs to learn. He's not only a warrior king who goes to battle on behalf of his people, like we talked about last week, but he is a tender healer who nourishes them in their need. And we see in these episodes that God loves complainers. He doesn't rebuke Israel for their grumbling. He doesn't chide them for their failure to trust in him. He shows his love for complainers by meeting their needs and providing for them. And in the manna story, God doesn't even wait for Moses to cry out to him. Uh, as soon as Israel grumbles against Moses and Aaron in 16.3, immediately in 16.4, the Lord says to Moses, look, here's what I'm going to do. I've got this covered. I was hoping I'd have a chance to do this. But then look down at the very end of our passage, 1635. There's a little, there's a series of notes about what manna was like, what it was called. And this little note, the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Why should Israel need manna for 40 years? The trip from Egypt to Canaan is only a couple weeks at most. But the narrator's aside here reminds us of what will come. More complaining. Complaining against Moses, complaining against God, that ultimately leads to rebellion and 40 years in the wilderness instead of 40 days. But this little note also reminds us that throughout that 40 years in the wilderness, God loves complainers. And by his grace, he provides manna for them to eat. And he continues to love Israel faithfully throughout Israel's history. Despite their complaining, despite the exile, despite all that, God loves Israel so much that he sends his son to be born as part of Israel, as her Messiah. God loves complainers, and that's good news. In these stories, we see a second related truth. God tests his people. God tests his people. From Israel's point of view, the trouble that they find themselves in is apparently a result of Moses' poor leadership. And so they complain or grumble against him. Why did you bring us out here? Why did you pick this path to go on? Didn't you know any better? But in both 1526 and 16.5, God sees what's going on in a different way. In both verses, it says that the Lord is testing Israel. Ideally, tests are designed, even in school, to show the student and the teacher what the student has learned and what they still need to learn. Okay, so a midterm, ideally, is helping you to see where you need to study more before the final. Testing is supposed to be about learning. 
And in Deuteronomy 8, 40 years later, Moses looks back on these divine tests and describes them in exactly this way. He says, the Lord humbled you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna so that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The Lord fed you in the wilderness with manna that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Okay, Moses says these tests are to teach people. Okay, they're for learning, to learn that every word comes, uh, the man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Testing isn't pleasant, okay? Israel is near the point of death. God's tests are always searching, trying, difficult. If it was easy, it wouldn't really be a test. But Moses reassures that the Lord tests his people to do them good in the end. Okay, if you're in the midst of a season of testing, it may be painful, but hear this word of reassurance. It's for your good in the end. God's tests are formative. Moses describes it as a process of humbling. Okay, humbling is about being made teachable. A proud person thinks they know everything, and so they don't need to learn anything. A humble person is teachable. They know that they need the Lord. God's tests are for your good. They show us what we know, but what we still need to learn, how we need to grow into the sorts of people that the Lord desires us to be. Let's look for a moment closer at the two tests that Israel faces. When faced with bitter water at Merah, Moses cries to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Uh, Sweet water is fresh water, drinkable water, potable water. And somehow this tree, perhaps chopped up, has antiseptic uh, properties and is able to purify the water. But what's key in this story is that the Lord showed Moses the tree to use. Uh, That verb showed is from the same root as the noun Torah, God's law or instruction. The point is that Moses himself must be instructed, guided, shown by the Lord if he is going to be a life-giving leader for Israel. And then in 1526, the Lord proclaims to all Israel in the plural, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Uh, This is the first conditional clause like this that God has spoken to Israel, the first if that he's spoken in the book of Exodus. But see, it comes after he's already redeemed Israel as his own people. He's brought them into saving relationship with him. So it's not, if you do these things, then I'll save you. It's saying, now that I've brought you into relationship with me, here's the right way to respond. Diligently listen. Do what is right in my eyes. Give ear to my commandments Keep all my statutes. It's not four different things, but all together describe a whole life oriented towards the Lord. The Lord looks for intentions, wills, and acts that are aligned with his revealed character. He wants to see people that live in the way that he shows them. Moses follows the Lord's Torah, and it leads to the water being purified, Israel being given life. 
And then in 16.4, the Lord says he's going to test Israel as a whole to see if they too will walk in the way that he shows according to his Torah or law. After the Lord delivers and redeems Israel, he gives them a food command. He says, I will provide bread from heaven, but there are three restrictions. Uh, maybe we have time for one of the things I deleted. Uh, in the Bible, this is a, it's not surprising. It's a regular occurrence. What happens in Genesis 2? God creates the garden. He puts humans there, and then he gives them a food command. He says, come and eat all the fruit of these trees except for from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. After God saves Noah from the flood, he comes out of the ark and God gives another food command. He says, come, now you may eat from all the animals except don't eat their blood. Again, now uh, uh, God rescues Israel from Egypt and he gives a similar command. He says, I will give you something to eat. I'm going to provide bread for you except... Once again, there's a few specific restrictions. Only take what each person needs, don't store it overnight, and don't try to gather it on the seventh day. In one sense, these food commands, uh, eat any fruit you want except for that one fruit. Okay, eat animal, any animal you want, but drain its blood first. Eat as much bread as you need that I'm providing for you, except don't try and save it overnight. In, in, in a certain sense, they're, they're, they're very simple, low-stake commands. And that's kind of the point. God's saying, will you trust me? Will you walk according to my teaching in the simple daily things? Can you be faithful in the regular basic rhythms of life? Well, in chapter 16, the test shows sort of mixed results. Okay, Moses warns the people not to try and save manna overnight. But some try it anyways, and it's moldy and full of worms, and it stinks. Uh, again, 1626, Moses warns Israel. He says, on the sixth day today, there's going to be double portion, so take a double portion today. Tomorrow, there's not going to be any manna. And what happens? Some people go out and try to see if there's a bit of manna, and they find none. Well, mixed results are okay. God tests his people to see where they're at. And so they can see where they're at, what they still need to learn. And what do they need to learn? They need to learn that God sustains his people and shapes his people. That's the third truth I want to focus on. God sustains his people and he shapes his people. First, God sustains his people with manna. Uh, is manna some kind of a natural phenomenon that God natural, uh, uh, providentially uses? Or is it a kind of supernatural provision direct from God? Uh, all sorts of hypotheses have been proposed. Apparently, there's a kind of aphid that produces a kind of secretion that can be eaten. Uh, apparently, there's a kind of tree that if a certain insect bites it, it will uh, have a certain kind of sap that Israel might have eaten. You know, there's all kinds of things like that that have been proposed. And God may indeed have used some natural mean like that. Uh, means like that. It wouldn't detract from his glory. But it certainly is not the point of the story here. There's no mention of aphids or trees or anything like that. The point here is that God sustains his people by providing for their needs. He gives them what they need. In 1614, Israel goes to bed with God's promise that there will be bread, but without bread yet. Then they awake to a sort of white Christmas morning scene. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing. Fine as frost on the ground, and when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. 
And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Uh, This is the first time in Exodus that Israel speaks corporately in a way that's not complaining. And how do they respond? They respond to God's provision with appropriate wonder. What is it? What's happening? What is this thing that God is doing? They've had lots to complain about so far in the book. But now, finally out of Egypt, out of slavery, Israel can pause in wonder and awe at God's provision for them. So God sustains his people. He provides their daily bread. But perhaps even more importantly, God shapes his people with manna. Israel has been enslaved in Egypt And now there's been a regime change, but as um, those who are my age or older know, uh, regime change is easier said than done. You can take out one leader and put in another leader, but the sort of basic patterns of tyranny and oppression and slavery uh, continue. And certainly that seems to be the case with Israel. They must unlearn the patterns of slavery and the Egyptian way of life, and they must learn a new pattern and way of life. And God uses the daily manna to do just that. Gathering manna shapes Israel's rhythm of life and their desires. So Israel's told to go out and gather a day's portion every day. Okay, this daily task of seeking out, gathering, and preparing manna teaches Israel both trust and restraint. They trust that the Lord will indeed provide their daily bread each day. Restraint, they just take what they need for the day. They're instructed not to try and store up uh, extra manna. Okay, to do so would be to fail to trust that the Lord will provide each day. Remember back in Egypt, what Israel was tasked with doing, it's building store cities for Pharaoh. Literally whole cities where Pharaoh can hoard excess food. But now God is shaping Israel to a new order of life. He challenges the natural desire to hoard. And he says, instead, trust me each day to provide for your daily needs. Isn't that the sort of challenge we need? We live in a culture that prizes hoarding. We don't say that explicitly, uh, but implicitly, the multiplication of storage units, the endless commercials for things that you never knew you needed until you see that commercial, and now you can't live without it. It's the system of life. It's an Egyptian way of life. And we need this challenge to trust the Lord each day for our daily bread. Moses said God tests his people to teach them that humans live not by bread alone, but every word. Nope, I turned over to the wrong page. Sorry, there we go. Uh, uh, We have a new printer that does double-sided, and it did that on accident this morning, and so now I'm confused. But now we're on the right page. Uh, uh, Not only does he tell them to, 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 to store it each day, but the manna won't keep overnight. So there's no possible way to store up excess week over week uh, and, and sort of, you know, kind of become a, a manna magnet that has more manna than anyone else or something like that. And at least for this period of wilderness pilgrimage, God actively inhibits the possibility of developing a market economy. Okay? You can't accrue the sort of excess needed to set up that sort of a market. You just have to get your daily bread each day. Uh, That's not saying long-term that God's opposed to markets or things like that, certainly not. But for this period, Israel needs to learn a new pattern of life, of direct dependence 
on the Lord. And remember, it's meant to be a short-term period of time initially, 40 days, not 40 years. And then this daily rhythm is complemented by a weekly rhythm. There's a break each week, something totally different than the endless, monotonous slavery in Egypt. The seventh day is a day of rest. It's a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. It's the first reference to the Sabbath in the whole Bible. The idea is there in Genesis 1, and as we'll, as we'll see, uh, God creates the world across six days, and then he rests on the seventh, so that sort of pattern is there in God's own act of creation. But now God's redemption, his deliverance of Israel from Egypt, restores that order of creation. And again, that points us to something fundamental about God's work, that redemption and grace restores creation and nature. The Sabbath is a sign, a promise, a reminder of the Creator's super, super abundant goodness. There's enough, not excess, not scarcity, but there's enough for each day and to take a rest each week to set aside a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Again, we're challenged uh, at, at a very literal level with the same temptation. There's always the temptation to work right up to the margins, to squeeze a few more hours into the work week, to take Sunday to get a little bit of extra work done. And uh, just as an aside, I know some of you work jobs that necessitate working on Sunday. When we get to the Sabbath command in uh, a couple months, We'll talk about that more, but in general, this temptation, like if I just used a few more minutes, if I just had a few more hours, I could make a little bit more, I could get farther ahead. Yet Christians today are also challenged to take a Sabbath rest as an act of trust in God's provision and as resistance to the world's acquisitive assumptions, saying, I don't need to hoard, I have enough, I don't need excess. Finally, uh, manna is a metaphor or picture of God's ongoing work to shape his people. They say, what is it? Uh, we've never seen this. Our parents have never seen this. It doesn't fit into our previous categories of experience. Manna represents a new way of living. It's life totally dependent on God. It's life lived in divinely ordered rhythms. Uh, in, this, in this order or economy of manna, each person is sustained regardless of their ability. So those who gathered little had enough, those who gathered too much, they just had the right amount. Um, either, you know, Calvin says maybe everybody dumps their grain together and then sorts it out according to people's needs. Uh, if, you know, uh, Paul seems to pick that up in 2 Corinthians 8. Anyways, uh, the point is that in manna and God providing, everyone is sustained regardless of their ability. And manna doesn't fit typical human desires. It can't be stored up or used to generate wealth. You can't get an excess of it to keep over for future generations. And all of that should sound familiar to us. It's, it, it's how God's grace always works. Grace is about life dependent on God. It's life ordered by divine rhythms. Each person is sustained by God's grace regardless of their ability each person, uh, uh, you can't store up grace for your children. You can't get grace today to use up tomorrow. It's new each day. God's gift of grace must re be received in the present moment, okay? You may have had God's grace a year ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Your grandparents may have had God's grace. That's all well and good, but you need it fresh today. 
And so manna and Israel's wilderness pilgrimage more generally have provided a picture of the life of faith throughout the history of the church. The story has been taken as a reminder of the need for daily renewal of God's grace. Okay, so the psalmists talk about when I rise in the morning, I pray and offer sacrifices. What do we see in the gospels? Even what we were reading earlier with John the Baptist, Jesus rises early in the morning to find a place alone to pray. Man is a picture of beginning each day with God's grace. For us, modern Christians, that doesn't mean going out and gathering grain off the ground, but beginning each day with prayer, with an active acknowledgement of our total dependence on God and his grace. Okay, so it's a test, it sustains, and it shapes. And as I mentioned earlier, God sends his Messiah through Israel, Jesus Christ, and he comes and he faces the same test. Remember in the wilderness period, he's out in the wilderness for 40 days. And the first test is he doesn't have food to eat. And Satan tempts him. He says, turn a rock into bread and eat that. But what does Moses say? Or not Moses, uh, Jesus say? He's learned the lesson of manna. And he responds, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. He's learned the lesson of manna, that you live in dependence on God, not bread. And so then Christ, who faces these tests and is totally faithful and passes them without complaining, where each of us fails, gives himself as bread from heaven. As we heard earlier from John 6, he says, I am the life of the world. I am bread from heaven. Whoever comes to me will no longer thirst. He gives his own faithful, righteous life to sustain and shape our lives. Christ Jesus is the grace that we totally depend on day in and day out to live. Through Jesus, God enacts a new redemption and he is at work shaping our rhythms of life. He's at work restoring the created order. And so it's good and right that each Sunday we set aside time for a solemn rest and a Sabbath to the Lord that we join together under God's word, singing God's praises that our week is rhythmed day, uh, week in, week out, each morning with prayer, each week with corporate worship. It's a reminder that we are dependent totally on Christ who gives himself for the life of the world. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you love complainers. I'm sure I'm not alone in confessing that I have a tendency to complain from time to time. And yet you love us. When we complain about the season of life you have put us in, you love us and provide for us. When we face tests, instead of facing them in dependence on you, we tend to complain and yet you love us and you continue to test us for our own good. Lord, we ask both as a church and as individuals, uh, we ask a daring thing, that you would indeed test us. We know it will be painful. We know it will be unpleasant and yet reveal to us through your testing how we need to grow in dependence on your grace, what we need to still learn about your nature. Test us to teach us what you are like for our good in the end. And then Lord, we ask indeed that we would be sustained day in and day out by your grace. 
There's some here, Lord, who undoubtedly have never come to you and drank the water of life, who have never eaten the bread of life, and so do not know about the life abundant that you give. By your Holy Spirit, draw them to yourself even this morning. Wrestle with their hearts, teaching them to live in dependence on you. For the rest of us, Lord, each day, although we confess that you are our Lord and Savior, each day we need to be reminded that we depend on your grace. Let us be diligent in the use of the ordinary means of grace you have given us. Let us be faithful in beginning each day with prayer. Let us be faithful in reading your word that we might be reminded of your grace to us. We offer all these prayers in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.